hello. Osha here. I'm on a plane. I think I'm above... I don't know where I'm above. I'm above the, 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 the sunburnt country behind a surgical mask. Before we get to the podcast, I just want to say thanks for downloading it and um, say that uh, this show isn't possible without my producer, Rachel Barrett, my audio producer, Andy Marr. And I need to pay those people to help me make the show. So you might hear an ad here at 30,000 feet. You might hear an ad depending on where you are in the world and how you're listening. So if you hear an ad, thanks for helping me pay Andy and Rachel. If you don't, you're going to hear a little bit of Jonathan Lapali. It's actually cool. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you look back at the early seasons of, you know, the U.S. Survivor, it was almost kind of quaint in a way. I mean, they, uh, there was really no strategizing in those early part of those seasons. But now, the minute they hit the beach, that's all they're doing. And that really continues throughout. And, you know, you got to remember that the show we put together is, you know, an hour, hour and a half, but there's 24 hours of that, 24 hours. I mean, the producers were on set. They put together a, uh, a WhatsApp of, of, you know, running commentary of what's going on on the beach, you know, who's strategizing with who, what's going on. And it's mind boggling all day long, <laughs> the shit that's going on. It's unbelievable. And it's really a testament to the editors that they can actually filter out a story that works because there's so many different plots going on at any given moment. Your head wants to, like, cave in. That is actor, host of Survivor Australia, and doctor, Jonathan LaPaglia. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for downloading the show. I'm on a plane and I'm on the way to Melbourne and I'm wearing a face mask on a plane and I'm shitting myself because I'm on a plane, which is a small tube full of other people's air. But, you know, this is giving me something to do so I don't shit myself so much. Anyway, I hope you're good. If this is the first time you're listening to the, the show, um, hey, man, thanks for listening. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast that happens twice a week. On Mondays, I speak with a guest. On Fridays, I'll speak with you. And uh, each episode just aims to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. That's it, something that you hear today. You're going to need to hear it. You're going to need to hear something that, that happens today. There's, goodness, we're nearly 350 episodes by now. Uh, so there's a lot of other episodes to catch up on. And if the show does bring you value, the best thing you can ever do for me is just to let someone else know. Tell someone about the show. Rate, review the show. But recommend the show to somebody. Hit the share app in the corner of your phone and, and send it off to someone who might need to hear an episode today. If you don't know who I am, my name's Oshie Ginsberg. I, I host TV shows. I write books. I um, parent children. I ride bicycles. I pack things into storage boxes and put them underneath the plane because I'm going away for a couple of weeks and uh, look I, I want a pressure cooker I want to take my pressure cooker with me because I don't want to eat takeaway food so I've got a pressure cooker and a couple of kilos of chickpeas and some rice and I'm good uh, so yeah <laughs> and I'm sitting on a plane right now behind a surgical mask thank you very much to the people that did let me know where they're listening to the show I always love to see where you're listening to the show couple of cracking photos coming in from Melbourne which I'm on the way to people going outside for their government allowed exercise which is great Lisa sent me a photo of her with the ducklings ducklings don't give a shit that there's a pandemic on ducklings don't care ducklings having a great time so is Lisa so thanks for that photo that's pretty cool I really appreciate that thanks everybody that has reached out and um, sent a photo of, uh, of them with a new copy of the new book that's really cool the book's called Back After the Break you can get it where you get your books 
I don't think we're doing an updated audio book at this point, but there are, it is an updated book. There's extra chapters for me, extra chapters for my wife, stuff that wasn't in the first book. And uh, I really hope you enjoy it. Uh, and thank you for the people that let me know that they have heard it. I did really want to uh, just kind of check in with you a little bit today, heading off to the Masked Singer, which would be cool. But going to the airport was weird, man. The first time I've... I used to catch a plane every third day, every second day. When I was doing radio in Brisbane, I'd be on a flight all the time. Not a week would go has gone by, I think, in the last... Shit, I don't know. There certainly hasn't been a month in my life over the past 20 years that I haven't been on a plane. So for go, to go six months without getting on a plane was pretty interesting. And now... Here we are. Oh, there's snow in the mountains. That's super cool. I'm looking down over at some water catchment and some snow on some mountains, which is dope. Oh, that's great. Australia's a beautiful country. It really is. Thanks for the people that got in touch about the check-in on Friday. I appreciate it. Um, it's always a bit... It feels strange sometimes being so honest with you, but I'm, I'm grateful that I am because when I read the emails that you send me, I understand that it really helps a lot of people who listen. So... Thanks. Thanks heaps. Before we get into my guest today, uh, Jonathan LaPaglia, if you are interested in all things Survivor, you may also be interested in episode 323 with David Jaday. Uh, if you scroll back in your podcast feed, you'll be able to find that episode 323 with David Jaday, who I interviewed before he knew he was the winner of Australian Survivor. But he knew that he was in the final two, but he didn't know he was the winner. And it was a cracking conversation. I adore Survivor. I think it's brilliant. And um, that was a great chat. So here's a little taste of it to give you a bit of incentive to scroll back and check it out. Everything becomes something. These little social interactions we have with human beings that you wouldn't think twice about become something on the island because you're kind of like oh Osha's looking at me in that way does that mean something you start basically analyzing people every single thing they're doing whether it's just an innocent conversation a look the way they touch someone's arm it just everything becomes something but that is also a tool at your disposal to try and give people something that maybe you want to pretend like you're closer with someone than you are or you know so it's all these nuances that you just take for granted that you would never take notice of in your everyday life that become massive massive deals when you're playing survivor that's david janae you can find that podcast way back in episode 323 uh, just scroll back and uh, and have a listen to that if you, if you got the got the vibe so let me tell you about my guest today jonathan lapalia is an actor a TV host and a doctor, originally from Adelaide, and he's the host of Australian Survivor, which is a show I absolutely adore. Earlier in the year, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, Jonathan was unable to travel to Australia, and this superfan, me right here, this person who absolutely loves Australian Survivor, got the call up to host the reunion show and the finale of Survivor and Reveal the well, he revealed the winner, but I did the reunion show afterwards, and it was one of the more extraordinary TV experiences of my life. It really was like that Disney movie where the high school kid gets the call from the you know the coach of the I don't know the LA Rams and says, "Hey kid, we're going to need you to throw quarterback for the Super Bowl." And he you know there's a footage of him running onto the field after a training montage. That's seriously what it felt like. It was uh, amazingly good fun. But yeah, uh, just a bit of a note: we recorded this conversation a couple of months back now for one reason or another I wasn't able to get it out initially but Jonathan was the first person that I saw who was wearing gloves and a mask indoors he's a doctor he understands how disease vectors work and um, I remember him saying listen man you know you'll all be in gloves and masks before you know it and he was right he was right so he and I talk a lot about the first wave of Lockdowns and the first wave of disease transmissions, and we, you know, our predictions of what might happen. But I think it's kind of interesting because when you listen to it, you can see what we thought was going to happen, how it was going to end up, the way it might play out, and what actually was going on. And that was, I think, it was back in April we recorded this, and here we are now in August. And uh, well, it's just interesting little time capsule and how 
quickly we've moved in some respects and how not quickly we've moved in others. It's an interesting thing to listen to. Jonathan's a very interesting man with colossal biceps. I couldn't let the conversation go by without asking him how he got his arms so massive. So I did nerd out of it and ask him that. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. He's a great guy. He's got a great energy. I really enjoyed him uh, on the show. And uh, I hope you get uh, a bit of a glimpse into, you know, his perspective or what life is like in in California. And, um, you know, that was what life was like in California in April and and his vibe on on where things might go. I hope you enjoy the show. If you dig it, let him know. He's quite active on Twitter. You can find him online. Enjoy this conversation with Jonathan LaPaglia. When we spoke last time, you were, I'm sure you won't mind me mentioning it, we were doing a satellite test of the Survivor finale and you were on set and you were in gloves. And you guys were giving shit about that. And you just said, fuck you, give it a week. And you were right. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, but, you know, surprisingly, you guys have been doing quite well compared to the rest of the world, certainly to us in the U.S. I mean, Jesus Christ. You, what do you have, like uh, 6,600 cases and I think 70-something deaths? Something pretty like, good numbers. Yeah, there's a harrowing stat I read the other day that the amount of people that have died from coronavirus in Australia in total is the same amount of people that die every two hours in New York, which is fucking horrible. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah, you're right. It's crazy numbers. Well, so what's going on there? I mean, I don't understand why you guys haven't been hit as hard as other places. I think that they could have got it a little earlier, but I think, you know, say for the odd cruise ship full of infected people being allowed to wander through Sydney for a couple of days before they went, yeah, you may want to lock yourselves down. I think we have been benefited by generally a population that are clever enough to understand what's going on. There's always going to be people that make the news that are on the fringes of behaviour. Right. But generally, we are people who go, oh, yeah, I can understand. I can read that graph. I can see that curve. I can see how many ICU beds there are, and I don't want to need one of those if they're not there. Okay, I will stay home. That's fine. And, yeah, I mean, I think it's like 80 to 90% compliance of the lockdown is it's pretty decent for us as a, as a nation. I think we're pretty good. I think news out of America is, it's odd because, you know, I know you live there in Los Angeles. I, I lived in Los Angeles for about 10 years. They are very much a fuck you, don't tell me what to do. I'm allowed to do what I want. Get your government out of my life in some parts of the country. And yeah, middle, definitely. We've got protests going on right now. Oh, man. It's crazy. Combined with the open carry laws in some countries, you've got people legally walking around in front of the governor's mansion, that's essentially our premier, with an AR-15 holding a flag going, fuck you, I'm going to walk around out here. (laughs) Jesus Christ. I know. It's madness. And, you know, all that's been stoked by our fearless leader. I mean, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the tweets he's been pushing out, you know, Mm. to liberate, you know, certain states. And it's just, uh, it's completely insane. My brother lives in one of those states. My brother and his husband live in Michigan. Mm. And um, there's this fabulous kind of, war going on between Trump and the governors, you know, Trump claiming he has ultimate authority and the governor's going, well, actually, no, you don't. And the governor actually had people outside the state house open carrying AR-15, his name's Gretchen, and um, brilliantly in the most fucking bold, I love her, she just said, your gun won't protect you from coronavirus. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a cool statement to make like you're such a big strong man but it won't help (laughs) i know it is a cool statement but their response is that their vaccine is their religion i mean it's unbelievable how how stupid some of these people are it's crazy that really has been their response that their vaccine is their religion like wow okay I do wonder, mate, you've got, obviously, you've got your finger on the pulse a lot more. I left. It was a confluence of factors. I'd met the woman who's now my wife and the mother of the kids, and I met her, and work was going okay in Australia right around the time when Trump won the nomination, and I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be in a country where he loses, and I do not want to be in a country where he wins, so I kind of left. So you've got your finger on the pulse a lot more. You've been there quite a while. How's the country changed since you've been living there? Well, I've been living here in the U.S. uh, since 
shit, 94? So 94. So I first four years was in New York. And then in 98, I came out to LA for a weekend and I've been here ever since. I think the most obvious change is just how uh, divided the country has become. I mean, I think that's the most obvious change. It, it definitely felt like you know, we're all in this together. When I first came to the U.S., you know, we're all rubbing elbows. We're all, we've all got a common cause. But now it feels so divided. And I'm not sure what the solution is. It really feels like everyone's hunkered down in their corner. And certainly, you know, living in L.A., it, it almost feels like a separate country in a way. California, I should say, California, you know, 40 million people. It almost feels like it's a, a separate country in people's attitude and our policies, our politics. Yeah, that that's really the most obvious change, I think. Well, how do you see it? Well, the idea that the polarization of any kind of discourse or discussion, I mean, democracy only works when two people who kind of disagree find something that they can both live with right. as a solution. Yet that seems to have kind of gone out the window. I mean, around the time of that election when uh, Trump was going for the Republican nomination, I would look back and, and look at there's Republican nomination debates between Reagan and George Bush Sr., where they are, you know, having a Republican Party debate for the for the nomination for president in 1980. And you listen to these guys, I'm like, these are Republicans talking? What? Right. What? Right. <laughs> you can't even believe. Right. The, no, we've got to be friends with our neighbours in Mexico. We've got to, how can we support Honduras? How can we, you know, we all know how that went down. But there's the compassion and empathy that existed on both sides of politics. I know. There's a... It's going to become so rancorous. Yeah. You know what it is, Jonathan? I think there seems to be separate versions of reality that people are making what they then feel are completely justified decisions upon depending on where they want to look to get their version of reality. And I think, for me, that's the big issue. Yeah. I mean, look, the other thing that feeds that is you know, the way we receive information now. So much of it is received over social media. There's a lot of unvetted sources. And I think that's because we want our information and we want it immediately. And so a lot of information just gets pushed out there without being fact-checked. So that's part of it. But there's also people desperate for that headline that's going to stick, especially in social media. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. So it's very easy now as a reader to find information that fits your narrative. And so you have these echo chambers being set up and it just uh, furthers that divide. And uh, obviously social media is here to stay and that's the way people want to receive information now. That's certainly the most popular way of receiving information. So I, I, I don't know how that's going to change. I don't think it's going to change. I would agree, unless there's some sort of quite significant government intervention as far as codes of conduct around those big social media companies, namely Google, Facebook right. and Twitter. You know, just so if I was to watch a video on coronavirus, that two autoplay videos later, I'm not watching some conspiracy theorist telling me that there's no zoological DNA in this and it's been manufactured. I mean, it isn't. But now this video has got right. 50 million views. I'm wanting to believe it. You know, it's hang on. Right. How is this OK? You and I both work in broadcast media. There are right. very strict codes of conduct about what we can and cannot do when we're being watched by a couple of million people here in Australia. Yet a video can be seen by a similar amount or way greater amount of people here in Australia. And you can be saying whatever the fuck you want, horrible shit about made up stuff. But if you're, you're saying it and presenting it and you've got third line supers and you've got chroma key behind you and you're showing still frames, it looks like a news broadcast, but it's absolute bullshit. Yet it's presented in such a way that looks the same as everything else. So you well, why, why wouldn't I believe it? This person looks convincing. Sure, I'm in. And it's backed up by the numbers, by the video numbers, as real or fake as they may be. So there's got to be some regulation around that. I think that, but these are the same companies that help those governments win elections, man. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, it makes me wonder because, you know, their argument is, well, there's just so much stuff out there. We can't fact check everything and blah, blah, blah. But as an example, the other day, I posted a video on Instagram of my dog watching the movie. Have you watched Isle of Dogs? It's a yeah. Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, it's brilliant. I cannot right. watch it with my dogs. My dogs will go fucking crazy. Right. So we were watching it with my daughter and my dog's there. It's a new dog. 
and he's, you know, intently watching the scene between these other dogs and starts barking. And, you know, I thought it was, you know, cute and funny. And so I posted it, but within two minutes, the post got taken down by Instagram because it had footage of the Isle of Dogs and it's copyrighted, right? So they were instantly on it for something like that. Two minutes of video in the background of my video. And I'm thinking if they had the team that's ready to do something like that, and so immediately, why can't they do that with misinformation Mm. that's out there all the time? It makes you wonder. Like you said, it's big money, right? It's very big money. And it's your video of your dogs barking at other dogs isn't going to endanger lives. Yet someone going out there going, no, there's no such thing as as this and herd immunity will save us and la, 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 la. That will endanger lives. If I go down to the store and I grab a shopping trolley and I pick up something off the shelf right now and if I'm lax in my discipline of hand sanitizing every time and washing everything up when I get home, potentially I will have infected myself and my family from someone else's belief that no, 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 this isn't real, which isn't really okay with me. No, I agree. But you see it. I mean, I've seen on, you know, your posts, the posts that you've put up concerning coronavirus and and public safety, you know, I see this, you know, there's still some people out there that are pushing back on it. You know, it's uh, kind of interesting. Definitely in, in Australia, I often defer to a great quote from Magda Zhabansky around the uh, marriage equality debate here in Australia and the referendum that we were forced to have on that. And it was 64%, yes, go right ahead. And she went, look, that is Australia. The 64% is the majority which is bigger than any mandate to win an election. You win an election on 51 here. So 64% of people have gone, yeah, absolutely. We, we can see a reasonable argument. We can see that something that affects another person that doesn't affect us is fine. Go right ahead. Why you go. And I like to imagine that that is what Australia is. So at the, at the vast majority of people... And there's obviously people on the fringes, okay? There's the other 38% of people on either side of that. But the vast majority are pretty level-headed, clear thinking. But even those on the fringes, they're not heavily armed like they are in America. <laughs> I know. That is that is scary. Very scary. When I, when I got to LA, people would be like, you know, because Crocodile Hunter was really big at the time. And like, aren't, you, aren't you afraid? It's like, mate, there's a gun in every third glove box on the freeway here. I couldn't give a fuck about a crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. You know, it's, uh, you know, people that even here in California, the people that I never would have suspected of having guns, you know, it's come out, you know, where everyone's in lockdown. They're like, oh, yeah, we got a gun. You know, it's in a lockbox. We've never used it, but we have one. I'm like, really? Jesus Christ. <laughs> For what? It's yeah. crazy. The stats are, and this is, a, I guess, one of the things, you know, when actual statistical analysis and research has shown, like, just the mere presence of a gun in your house increases your chances of getting shot mostly by that gun, so far, <laughs> I can have, you know, it's in the hundreds of times because you're now introducing a deadly weapon into a situation where there probably wasn't one and probably with somebody right. who's pretty good at taking that off you. Uh, so right. It's pretty weird. You've been in lockdown with the kids. Are you, you know, are you in homeschool mode? Yes, we are actually. Um, for some reason, Tilly, my daughter, her school, they went into um, – homeschooling two weeks before the whole state went into lockdown anyway. So I guess they saw the writing on the wall. So we've been doing it for quite a while now. How about you? How many kids do you have? We've got two. We've got one who's 16 and one who's just about coming on to eight months. So we've got both ends of the spectrum here. Right. So gee, her school, they have a lot of kids, obviously like many schools in Australia, it's our fourth largest export industry is education. So like many schools in Australia, there's plenty of international students. So they had a very, very clear idea early on of how many kids were coming over from China. They're mostly boarders. And they, they were early on, like even before the school term started, they were like all over it all over it. And so very early on, they were like, okay, look, if we're going to have, we're probably going to have to go to video at some point, here's the software everyone's going to need. We've had 
you know, we've trained all the kids up and how it's going to work. We've planned the whole thing out. And every second day there was a, another permission slip going, look, we might have to send them home in the middle of the day, you know, because if a kid shows up to school and is ill, they would just evacuate the place, right? But they were exceptional. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were really, really good. And we're really grateful for that. I would not want to be a school teacher. Right now, being told you've got to go back into school with 30 little Petri dishes running around in front of you, that would be tough for me. So I take my hat off to those teachers who are going back in there when the school term recommences here in Australia. That's a tough call, man. Mm. But but again, that you know, it brings me back to the point that your numbers are probably low enough to you know safely do that, which I still find kind of remarkable. I know you're saying you you know earlier you were saying that as a society people are responsible and they're following the rules. But there was a long period there where it was slow for Australia to shut stuff down. And, you know, once the virus gets hold in the community, it kind of rips through. So I, I am kind of surprised. I mean, what is it? Is it the temperature maybe that's a factor? I think they might have just Indiana jones it under the big sliding door just before the community transmission really kicked off. I think that's how they, they, they managed to shut it down just in the nick of time, thankfully. If they'd left it another couple of days, like only maybe 48, 72 hours, and that community transmission really kicked in, I think then we would have been in a very, very different place, Jonathan, when you looked at where the infections were and how the infection rates were. I'm still surprised, though, because because of your proximity to China. And I know that in January and February, you had, I think it was like 2,200 people coming specifically from Wuhan to Sydney a month. So they're pretty significant numbers. You would think that it would have been seeded in the community already. What is it about Australia that has, in a way, protected the country? It's kind of weird because a lot of other countries have done the same things that you guys have done. You, you know, everyone's dragged their feet to a degree, apart from a handful of countries that really took aggressive early action. I wouldn't say Australia was one of those. Eventually, they became aggressive, but it took a while. Yet the numbers are so low. There must be something else going on in Australia that is protecting it. Yeah, look, I would say that maybe, you know, you look at the countries where it's really kicked off and they are very high-density cities, high-density populations. You are to go and get your daily food or whatever. You've got to rub elbows. You've literally got to push past people to get to the grocery store or, or the market or whatever. Yet in the parts of the city of you know, it's like any city in the world. It's not our city, particularly of Sydney, but like any city in the world, various immigrant populations tend to cluster in certain areas, with the exception of the Southern Asian population. They tend to um, go pretty much everywhere. But, you know, growing up in Adelaide, you know, there was the Italian part, there was the Greek part, there was the Lithuanian part. That's where everyone just kind of, everyone clustered together. All right. And in those spaces, you're not walking to or somewhere, you're you're driving, you're in your car, you're going to one particular place. And maybe that's a factor. I, I would no, Jonathan. Let me let me ask though. With your medical background, do you is it harder knowing what you know about infection and knowing what you know about how easy it is and knowing what you know about you know virology? Is it harder when something like this shows up? Uh, I guess in a way. Uh, I don't know if it's harder, but I guess I view it through a different lens than the layperson. I guess, but I think countries like Australia will become case studies. I think once the dust has settled, you know, with this pandemic, I think we'll look back at countries like Australia, and, you know, as a model of why wasn't a a real problem there? Uh, What was the difference? You know, I think it's going to help shed some light on future pandemics, I think, particularly for this virus. And that's the thing. I I reckon we've kind of, we've got lucky with this one. This is the stay of execution from the governor on our way to the chair, this one, because (laughs) yes, it's awful. It's horrible. But let's not forget the last coronavirus, MERS, had a 30% mortality rate. Yeah. All right. And that thing was just horrible. That would kill you dead. That's like if 10 of your friends get this disease, three will die. They will. I know. And we're really lucky that we've got this to go, oh, so this is how fast something can spread and this is how bad it can affect us economically. Let's be way more prepared for something because there is another one. Like as sure as night follows day, there will be another 
disease that crosses over, just as like there's been every bird flu and swine flu and bat flu or whatever it is in the last 30, 40 years, as people kind of start to encroach on more and more rural areas, that's what's going to happen. So this we're lucky, I reckon, that we've got a chance to have learned from what's happening right now. Do you think we will as, as a human race? I think absolutely. When you've got essentially in Australia, there's a takeaway food manufacturer, which was the, I'm going to get this nearly right because I do know that she does listen to the show and she's the wife of the general manager of the place and she did write to me. They're a takeaway food packaging company. That was the closest thing that we had to a PPE manufacturer in Australia. And they were the only manufacturer in the country able to retool. They needed to call in, I don't know, like a thousand ADF people to help them to retool, to create PPE here in this country. That you would allow something as utterly vital as PPE to be that many steps away from you in the supply chain in case of an emergency, I can't quite fathom. You know, it's like we do have seatbelts, but they're in that car over there. And when there's an accident, we will go and get those seatbelts and we will bring them over here and then we'll put them on and then we'll crash. Like, Right. Uh, Look, here in the U.S., we've had it's been the same thing. You know, I mean, just look at the testing. I mean, uh, the whole discussion now is that the testing, it took the uh, CDC too long to get the test right, blah, blah, blah. But no one's talking about. Well, why weren't the tests ready to go before the virus even landed here in the U.S.? Like other countries did that, like Singapore, Taiwan. Those countries had their tests all ready to go. And that's why their containment was so much better than anywhere else. That's the question I want to know. It's like you knew it was coming. Why did you wait until the first case came here before you started even developing a test. It's kind of ludicrous. Yeah, those are definitely questions to be answered when it comes November. For, there's, I know that the, the CDC did have someone stationed in Beijing, but they were recalled. You know, uh, <laughs> right. there, yes. there, was right. a, uh, there was a pandemic response that was taken through in the change. Like uh, the Obama administration did create a pandemic response team and that team was has since right. been disbanded. So there was, there's a few systemic failures there that I don't know if the average Joe carrying his automatic weapon in front of a governor's mansion wants to know about, but that is what happened. But right now, there's probably not the chance to go over that because people are dying in the street. Yeah, well, it's not Trump's fault. It's the Democrats' Obviously. fault. <laughs> but that's, but that, that doesn't make us any better, you know, because now we're pointing fingers as well. You know, it's a systemic failure of an overall situation. <laughs> There's definitely lessons to be learned, and I certainly hope we do get a chance to learn them because we are, we are learning a lot about how people react and, you know, in a time of crisis. I, what's the neighborhood vibe like in Los Angeles? You live, I believe you live on the other side of the 405, so you live on the west side. Correct. What's the neighborhood vibe like? Are people generally looking out for each other? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's always had that kind of feel around here anyway, but it feels like people are looking out for each other. It's kind of weird because, uh, you know, our stay at home is now extended through May 18th. And I don't even think that's a hard date. I think it's going to be revised at that point. So, we've, you know, we've all been in it since, uh, was it March 19th? And so, you know, we've been doing it for a month. We're going to do it for another month. But they've closed, you know, everything's closed, including hiking trails and beaches. So there's nowhere for anyone to go. So people are now out on the streets. And actually going out on the street is one of the most precarious things you can do right now because there's just so many people out on the streets. And, you know, L.A., no one's on the street ever, right? (laughs) Everyone's in their cars. No one's ever walking or doing anything out on the street. Maybe the occasional jogger, the occasional cyclist. But now it's actually kind of difficult to do correct social distancing out on the streets. It becomes a little stressful if you want to go out for a run or something. Do you think, though, that that makes people feel a little more connected to their community? Because normally I remember the feeling of Los Angeles, like I'm in a city of 20-something million people, and I felt alone because there was, I didn't see another soul. I remember where we used to live opposite Universal Studios there in Studio City. The only other person I'd see on the street was my neighbor's gardener once a week. And I lived in a street with 20 houses on it. I just never saw anybody. No, no, it's true. You, you, you don't. And so it is kind of bizarre that you do see people now. But 
within that, yes, you're right. There is a certain connection going on. I mean, it's obviously it's eye contact, it's a smile, it's a wave. But I guess that's where the uh, you know the human contact is coming in. In the past, if if you gave someone a wide berth of six feet or more, you know, you might get a dirty look. But now you get a smile and a wave because you're doing the right thing. <laughs> so yeah, it is kind of strange. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Maybe this is the thing that we are hopefully going to need more of. And this idea of what you were talking, how to bridge that divide we're speaking about earlier in the conversation is just seeing the humanity in another person. Oh, there's another person. They live in the same area as me. Look at them. They kind of look a little like I do. They might vote for someone else, but we all live here together and they're smiling at me. Okay. You know, just to kind of reconnect a little with the humanity of another person rather than dehumanizing them through a, a comment stream at the bottom of a news article about an immigrant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hopefully something good like that comes out of this that would be great but unfortunately you know we have a commander-in-chief that uh, keeps stoking that division so um yeah i don't know i reckon people i think people might be getting clued up to it you know a little bit more when he's when he says no no it's a chinese virus i'm just being factually correct it came from china so it's a Chinese virus. Like that kind of like just schoolyard dog whistling. Surely people can go, all right, you're, you're, you're speaking to this <laughs> tiny little subset of your base right now. Everyone else can see that you're being a right idiot. But it's not a tiny subset, though. I mean, his, you know, his base is, what, 40 to 60 million. I mean, right. it's not tiny. And, you know, they're the gun-toting group who are out at Michigan right now standing next to each other saying that, religion is their vaccine uh, you know and and they like him talking like that like, like yeah it's the chinese you know it plays into their xenophobia it, yeah it, you know ticks all the boxes for them that's the problem and he just keeps stoking it I yeah mean, it's just it's so childish it is and i kind of feel i don't know if i feel sad i just it's a shame that so many people have been lied to saying, A, a pretend friend in the sky is going to save you from a disease, or B, this particular weapon that you're holding will keep you safe. Like, both those things aren't true, yet they've <laughs> been told to believe them, and they're not real. And it's like, well, that's, that sucks. You've been lied to, man. I'm sorry for you. <laughs> I know. Well, but again, it's only taking in information that jibes with your position, right, with your yeah. narrative. And that's the problem is that, all these people, all of us, in a, and some on some level, are stuck in echo chambers. Mm. In this idea that any opinion other than the one I already hold is a personal attack. Correct. <laughs> right. Where do you go from there, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it's tough. Well, I reckon where you go from there is like once you actually sit across from a table from someone and say you've got, all right, we're going to give you three hours to talk about how I don't know. They're doing some road repairs out, you know, on the main street in our place right now. So you get from one person from one side of the street, one person from the other side of the street. It's like, okay, what's the best time of day that we can do these repairs? One person on the side will go, we should do it in the middle of the night when no one's around. The other person will say, no, you should do it in the middle of the day. Just get it done. We need to get it done. All right. And then if you give people enough, many hours of the, like give them two hours, they'll come to a time within a 24 hour period when it's an okay time for both of them. Because they're sitting across from each other, they're seeing each other's needs, they're seeing each other's wants. Uh, if you give people enough time and enough shared outcome, here's a benefit for both of us. It's not a you lose, I win situation. I tend to believe that that's, as humanity, that's how we've got this far. But it's tricky to get there when people are walking around with a loaded clip and an AR-15 and a flag on their back. I don't know if they're ready to listen. 
No, exactly. And also in that, you know, that example that you gave, you're sharing a common ground and a common facts, right? We can both agree that time exists and that these two hours are common between us. But that's the problem is that the the facts, what one group believes is facts is completely different from the other group. And there's no common ground anymore. Right. Why do we need to repair? There is no road. No, there isn't. I don't walk on a road. That road has always been here. It was created. No one built that. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. So, you know, when you're talking about something like, you know, climate change, and yeah. one uh, one group says it's a hoax, the other group says, yeah, but 99% of scientists say that it's real. How do you come up with a solution if there is no middle ground in, in terms of agreed facts? Unfortunately, it's going to be an economic solution, I feel, Jonathan. So, but I, again, to wait for yes. much like coronavirus, it wasn't until the economic impacts of, oh shit, this is what's going to happen if our uh, hospitals get overrun and then the next thing that happens is that, you know, the mortality rate jumps from 1%, 2% in some countries to 16 something percent and then no one can go outside, no one can work. Oh, oh, right, then the economy will suffer. All right, now we have to fix this. So unfortunately, we have to wait, which really sucks. We have to wait for the external economic pressure on the system before anyone's going to change there, which is the worst, but that's that's the ship we've built. That's what we're sailing in. This is what we've got. So it's it's horrible. But do you think about that kind of stuff when you're out in Savo Savo? I mean, a lot of people, if you live in, I don't know, let's say Kingston in Brisbane or you live in Toowoomba, you don't fucking care about sea level rise. But if you live in Sabu Sabu or near us, you, if you live in Namatakula, you can see the fucking ocean's coming up and it's eroding their front lawn. Do you think about that stuff when you're over there? Well, it's interesting, actually, that, you know, we're in Sabu Sabu, I think they did get wiped out by uh, a tidal wave. I think it was a, a tsunami at some point. So they all, a lot of them moved in, you know, because... The coast is really beautiful, and you know, most all the villages are inland. And I'd be like, "Why are they all living inland?" It's because they got wiped out by a tsunami. So they've all moved in uh, inland, and maybe they've uh, unknowingly anticipated what's going to happen with uh, climate change. Yeah, it is. It is really tough, though. I find when I'm over there and I see people who are a some of the in Western terms, poorest people that I've ever seen, yet also in Western terms, the happiest people I've ever seen, who are, they are right now dealing with and will deal with in the next 20 years or so, the after effects of a way of life that they had no, nothing to do with. And it, so, mate, it breaks my heart on going to work some days. In terms of what? Tourism? No, no. In terms of my wife's Fijian. And so, you know, we have a fair amount of contact with people over there and the Fijian government's got plans to move 170 villages. They've already moved four because of rising sea levels. And, you know, there's islands nearby who've actually bought land on Fiji, you know, like 150,000 acres of mountain land because, okay, at one point we're going to have to move everybody and we are going to reestablish our country there. Mm. And this is a country, they can't afford a seawall, they can't afford a desalination plant. Yeah, you're right. There's the, but there's a lot of populations that will be severely affected. Like you said, un, until there's uh, a significant economic impact, nothing significant is going to change, I guess. Do you enjoy your time in Fiji? I mean, I know you're away from your family and, and it's for quite a while. Is it okay, though, being out there for so long by yourself? Yeah. Look, you know, just being away from the family, that's really the hardest thing. You know, it's a, it's a two and a half month ordeal. I mean, I'm, I'm working every day, which is good because if I'm going to be away from the family for that long, I kind of want to be busy and you know occupied. So I'm not sitting around thinking about that. But I mean, we work every day, long hours every day. I don't really get much of an opportunity to enjoy Fiji on any other level. What about when you're out there? Oh, we work either all day or we work all night. So some days I've got nothing to do all day uh, except <laughs> all I do, honestly, mate, because I'm I'm vegan and celiac. So I fill containers from Bunnings with just enough food for the month and a pressure cooker and stuff like that. And so I just cook for myself. I set myself up in my room and I, I cook all my own food and I just train. I've got a couple of sandbags that I take over there, throw a kettlebell in the lighting container uh-huh. and um, <laughs> I just train because I've got nothing else to do. Wow. <laughs> 
Well, good for you. How long are you up there for? Well, usually they're for maybe 30. It's not as long as you. It's maybe four weeks, four weeks, five weeks we're out there. But, you know, because we either shoot all day or all night. So it's either daylight hours or nighttime hours. So it's one or the other. So when it's the daylight hours and I'm just sort of sitting around, yeah, I'm doing deadlifts, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Which island do you guys shoot on? Oh, we're on um, the the big one. So we're down on the Coral Coast. That's where we shoot. I've been pushing for, oh. you know, I was like, can't you put us up at JMC or something? Like, where we go up to Sabu Sabu? Can't we get up there? But no, no, we're down, a, down on the Coral Coast down there. So it's about a half-hour drive to the location. So it's a month of being in high-ace vans uh, with, I believe, many of the same people that drive you around. Oh, that's hilarious. So you actually ship all your own food out? That's pretty smart. Yeah. You know, I'll just take kilos of chickpeas and rice and, you know, all the kind of dry stuff, you know, and beans and and whatever. And then I'll just pick up veggies on the side of the road because there's all these little markets on the side of the road in Fiji that you drive by. So I'll pick up snake beans and and things like that and ballet and things like this off the side of the road. Or I'll just grab some – there's a supermarket about five minutes from where we stay. So I'll get one of the drivers to fang me down there and I'll grab an onion or some garlic or whatever. And then, yeah, I just cook. I cook for myself, which is actually really good because it also gives me then something to do. And I, then I know I'm going to eat well because um, <laughs> as a celiac, I don't really want to get cancer of the duodenum yeah. <laughs> by, you know, eating out of a buffet. So uh, right. it's actually really good. I, I enjoy the discipline of it. Yeah, that's smart. It's tough eating well there because they just, you know, they don't really have a lot of produce. So uh, what time of the year do you guys typically shoot? Oh, in the, the wettest of wet seasons. <laughs> we shoot generally November. Oh, wow. And are you guys scheduled uh, for this November? Well, man, I don't know. That's the thing. I don't know if we're going to – I mean, the last thing I would want to do is take 80 people who may or may not be infected with something to a country that has a healthcare system uh, that doesn't look anything like ours. Mm-hmm. I don't know if international travel is going to be open up again. They've, they've, there's no international travel at the moment in Australia, Jonathan. They've kind of stopped it, basically. And uh, I don't know, it's all kind of up in the air at the moment. But I was saying this to somebody the other day. It's weird not working. It's weird not having money coming in. That That's very, very odd. But if I'm given a choice, I can't buy my kids new lungs. So yeah, I'll take the economic uncertainty over the idea of like, well, at least you're healthy. Let's eat some two-minute noodles, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, are they talking about maybe doing it elsewhere? I don't know. If we were going to do it, we'd probably have to do it domestically if we were going to do it. We'd probably have to do it somewhere in right. Australia. It'd be a real trick. Yeah, I don't know. It's a fun show. It's a really fun show to make because uh, – what I love about it is that at the final day of Bachelor and Bachelorette, no matter what, at least one person is going to leave with their heart broken. And that's it's tough for everybody, right? But on Bachelor in Paradise, the final day usually is just reserved for people who are telling each other they love each other. And it's really lovely if you go by the, you know, right. the, the last two seasons. The final day is people putting rings on fingers and proposing to each other. And it's really lovely. It's really nice. I like it. <laughs> it's really, right. Yeah, it's, right. it's really right. good. Right. What's it like as you get to the, the final moments of, uh, of Survivor? Is everyone, I mean, I'm guessing everyone on the crew is pretty tired, but do you just look at the contestants and go, man, you've done 54 days out here. All right, I've got nothing to complain about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, they, they do it tough, you know. I mean, you could see it with David at the end of the season that just aired. I mean, it takes its toll. It really does. I mean, you know, he's a big unit when he, he was a big unit when he started, yeah. but he was pretty frail at the end of it. And then the very next day when I saw him, when, you know, once uh, that final tribal was over and, you know, they obviously didn't know the result, but he was wrecked. I was pretty concerned about him, to be honest with you. I was like, wow, he just, he just really fell into a heap. He, uh, he was not in good condition at all. It's savage. Yeah, he had a fair amount of muscle on him, and to maintain that kind of muscle, you need to eat a lot of calories, and he wouldn't have been eating anywhere. He told me, I think he said he lost about 11 kilos over the days that he was there, which is tricky for your body to adjust to over that time. I'd be fine because yeah. beans and rice is all I eat anyway. So. <laughs> right, 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 right. He looked pretty broken at the end of it, you know, just physically. Yeah. You know, it's not only the weight loss, but – he got a bad flu as well, and then he had a lot of them ended up with infected 
spider bites and he had a couple of those and it was just a mess. And it's not only just the physical duress, it's the mental duress as well. I mean, you know, you're, you're constantly strategizing, right? Because someone's trying to vote you out at any given moment in the day. So uh, I think that really takes a huge toll on them uh, as well. And you could see that at the end, once it was over, he just completely fell apart. I don't know if he talks about that, but I was pretty concerned about him the next day. Yeah, he did mention, he came on this show and he did, he did mention that from the moment you wake up in the morning, every single thing means something, you know? And yeah. I personally, I can only imagine it'd be difficult not to be paranoid as you watch, why is that person talking to that person right there? Why are they, are they there that, yeah. so I can see them or are they there so someone else can't see them? Like, Christ almighty, right. that's a lot to think about. Like, I haven't even had a cup of coffee yet. <laughs> Totally. And they don't have coffee, ah. right? So, yeah, they're constantly looking over their shoulder. And that's exhausting to do that for 50 days straight. What do you find What do you find the most fascinating part? Is it when they all gather together and see each other for the first time and when you see the two tribes before merge, when you see the two tribes gathering and, and eyeballing each other and the tiny little nuances of communication as they set up towards merge, do you find that sort of thing fascinating, The kind of the body language? Yeah, look, they're always casing each other they're always trying to figure out people's positions particularly in other tribes they're trying to figure out who's in charge who's in trouble and they're yeah they're always thinking about merge and who they can work with who they can't work with this you know there's a lot of strategizing that goes on you know the show has really evolved you know if, if you look back at the early seasons of you know the u.s survivor it was almost kind of quaint in a way. I mean, they, uh, there was really no strategizing in those early part of those seasons. But now, the minute they hit the beach, that's all they're doing. And that really continues throughout. And, you know, you got to remember that the show we put together is, you know, an hour, hour and a half. But there's 24 hours of that. Mm. 24 hours. I mean, the producers were on set. They put together a, uh, a WhatsApp of, of, you know, running commentary of what's going on on the beach you know who's strategizing with who what's going on and it's mind-boggling all day long the shit that's going on it's unbelievable and it's really a testament to the editors that they can actually filter out a story that works because there's so many different plots going on at any given moment your head wants to like cave in it's crazy (laughs) which is extraordinary totally when you throw out a question at tribal and something unexpected comes up and then you just follow that bouncing ball. And that's when we get the best moments. And it's a combination of something that's a little daunting because you don't know where it's going to go, but it's also thrilling and exciting at the same time. Honestly, I find, you know, tribal is one of the trickiest things to do on the show. Oh, absolutely. Because that's where, you know, people are either single, double or triple crossing each other, saying something that they want the other person to think, or do I want you to think something else? I bet you thought that I thought you wanted to think that. <laughs> it's, you know, it gets these layers upon layers upon layers. Yeah, totally. And I kind of have a, uh, an idea of what's going on with everyone, but I got to keep everyone in mind, right? I got, you know, 12 people in front of me that I'm kind of track all the, I got to keep all their stories straight in my head. And then I got to keep all their lies in my head. And then I, at the same time, I got to like, well, this is kind of the story that we're trying to establish. And at the same time, I don't, I don't want to kill the spontaneity by you know, being slavish to that story. So there's just a lot going on, a lot to juggle in that moment. It's tough to be – you have to be nimble, but it's not easy to be nimble. All right. So because you've been following this WhatsApp all day, you know exactly who's lied to who, but you don't want to blow that in the tribal so to then stop that strategy because that way you would be influencing the outcome. Right. Wow. Right. You don't want to say, oh, like, I know you're lying, but you might think, okay, that could be an interesting scab to pick. You know, who knows what kind of reaction that (laughs) might elicit in this other person. (laughs) But you kind of have to file it away. You have to file it away and then try and find a way to come back to it again. You know, all the while you're still listening to what's going on and it's a mind fuck in a way. It really is. (laughs) Mate, you do an epic job at it. When I sat on your stool, you are taller than me because my feet couldn't reach the ground very well. When I sat on your stool, (laughs) the outcome had already been decided. 
So I wasn't revealing any information that was going to influence anything. So I could go in any direction. It was fine. Yet when you sit there, you've got to keep in mind, all right then. So there's this secret, say for example, there's a secret alliance happening between David and Matt across the tribes. I need to give enough to pay off to the viewer who has seen this what's going on. I need to make them feel like they're on right. the inside, but I can't give too much to let everyone else know what the hell's going on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't want to blow up someone's game either, right? You want to ask questions in a, in a way that they can answer them without revealing too much of their own game, you know, and it's tricky. It doesn't sound that difficult, but when you're on the floor, you know, in the moment, it's just, uh, you know, you, your brain is suddenly twisted into a pretzel trying to figure this weird <laughs> dance out you know i have to say that i was super impressed how you handled the reunion show though i mean i'm not surprised because you know you've been a host a long time and you've been you're so good at it but i was super impressed because i it's not easy i know it's not easy and you just walked in there and made it look easy but i think your viewers your viewers should know that it's not easy so it means that you're very good at what you do. Oh, that's very uh, kind so, of you. I was impressed. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful to hear that. I had an enormous amount of support from your team. They gave me extraordinary support. So I, I was just, man, I was just grateful to be there. And I was just, I just wanted to make sure that they all got a really great ending and a really satisfying finish. Because, you know, I know what it is. If you don't get a really cracking finale, you might not get recommissioned. I'm like, fuck, I want to watch the show next year. How can I make this as good as I can? Right. right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, and look, it was tough under the circumstances because, you know, no audience and you've got half of the cast were missing. I wasn't there. I mean, it was kind of a bizarre one. And given all that, you did really well. Thank you, mate. Um, really well. I'm very grateful. I was, like I said, I was really grateful that I was able to do it. And um, I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, that you feel that way. Thank you very, very much. We've been at this a little while. I, it would be remiss of me not to ask. Uh, my wife did dare me to do push-ups in an ad break to give them the true JLP experience. Uh, but you've got to talk to me, mate. How do I get to look like you? Because my, seriously, I try, Jonathan. I try. My arms just won't do what yours do. Uh, <laughs> you're away. You're on location. Mate, I've seen that cover. Was it men's health? <laughs> Mate, that was 10 weeks of caloric restriction and, you know, that was hard. But, like, what's the routine? I mean, like, when I'm on Batch in Paradise, I just do a combination of a kettlebell routine called it's just single arm swings uh, so i'll do what i'll do i'll do 50 i'll do 100 single arm swings in total and then i'll do 10 turkish get-ups each side and then i'll maybe throw out some deadlifts and stuff like that and that's it i'm done for the day but that's an hour and i'm out when you're on location because seriously mate the gun show is out of control <laughs> give us something jonathan give us something Look, I wish I had like the magic bullet for you, but I really don't. Like, I'm just, I'm like an old school dude. You know, they found me some rusted old weights and I use those, you know, like every second, I might work out every second day. And in between that, I'll run. You know, there's a little beach where I'm staying and I run up and down the beach like an insane person in the middle of the day when it's so fucking hot. And that's basically it. And it's just whenever I can jam it in and it's not easy to find time, like half an hour here, half an hour there. That's basically it. I wish I had some, you know, foolproof formula for you, but it's just old school. It's rusted old weights. That's it. And are you old school? Are you like just bench squats and deads? Is that it? I'd say I'm pretty, look, the weights that I have there are pretty basic. So I just, yeah, it's, you know, bench pressing, curls, you know, triceps. I mean, it's just basic shit, really. So you mean to tell me that if, if I don't, you know, get these 10 workout tips uh, that I have to follow every day to get massive guns, you know, that some YouTube video is telling me to do, like, you're just keeping it simple, you actually get results? I, I think so. I, I just think that it's simple physics, right? It's just resistance. I mean, um, I don't think there's any, like, magic bullet to it. I really don't. It's simple physics. It's just resistance work and also uh, cardio, I think, is important. That's why, you know, I run every second day. And diet, you know, just sensible diet, which it sounds like you do anyway. <laughs> do, how does it make your head feel? Does it make you feel, if you miss a day, do you notice the way you're thinking and, that, and where your mood is? 
Yeah, yeah, particularly running. Running is good for me. It's uh, it really levels me out. Yeah, I definitely get a little squirrely if I miss running. And it's running is not easy in Fiji. I don't, are you a runner? You're a cyclist, right? Yeah, I used to run. I used to run all the time, and then I got arthritis in my hips. I can't run anymore. But yeah, when I was in LA, running was my thing, man. I ran 10Ks every day. It's just what I did. I got up in the morning and ran 10Ks every single day, and it was just the best. I loved it. Right. It's good to clear the head, right? And that's, that's kind of what it is for me. It's a little bit of therapy in a way. It really straightens me out. I, I'm assuming that cycling is the same way for you, but you, do you take a bike with you when you go to Fiji? I would not ride my bicycle on the Queen's Road, Jonathan. Uh, no, <laughs> I do not take a bike with me <laughs> when I go to Fiji. No, kava is a fantastic ceremonial drink. However, when people drive after kava, it's probably not a great idea to be on the road. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, you know, and, and running is the same problem there. It's like there's no way to run in Sabu Sabu anyway, except the road, which is, like I said, it's fucking dangerous. So, uh, but fortunately, where I'm staying, there's, there is a little beach. So I, you know, do some laps on that. But, I know like when I was in, uh, you know, the first two seasons we shot in Samoa and there was nowhere to run there. And I remember once I was going out to run on the, on the street and one of the locals said, what, you're running out on the road? I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you better take the stick. I'm like, why? He goes, well, for all the wild dogs because they're going to come for you, buddy. They're going to fucking come for you. So there was nowhere to run there. So that, that was tough when I was shooting there because it was hard to get any cardio in. Far out, man. So what's it like now you're in lockdown in Los Angeles and all the trails are closed? Where are you getting your run in? Well, like I said earlier, like going out, you know, I run on the street, but it's not easy because everyone's out on the street now. So to do correct social distancing, it's tough. And there was a, uh, a study on recently from Belgium, I think. Some guy figured out the aerodynamics of walkers, runners, and cyclists in terms of the aerosol that they're emitting, right? So if someone has coronavirus and they're running, they're actually projecting a trail of aerosol that can extend for up to seven meters. What? Uh, yeah, exactly. I shall, I'll, I'll send it to you, but you shouldn't run behind someone less than seven meters because you'll potentially be in their wake right, of coronavirus. Whoa. And for a cyclist, it's like 20 meters. Yeah, right. Please do send me that because we were in the park the other day, which was lovely. There was people walking everywhere, but every now and again, a runner would kind of fang through and you're like, yeah, sure. I mean, I know how heavy I breathe when I'm, when I'm running. It's like, that's probably not great that we're now breathing the air that was just in that person's lungs. Correct. It's difficult to prove, I guess, but they just did aerodynamic studies of aerosols that walkers, runners, and cyclists were emitting as they were exercising and and they found you know these results whether that increases your chances of getting coronavirus i mean logically you would think it does but yeah that's, that's a whole other consideration so with all the people out on the street now it's difficult to maintain those kinds of distances oh man you are right jlp it's been fantastic to talk to you thanks for letting me nerd out a bit about survive with you thanks for your reflections on life in america you bet, uh, it's great to hear someone who's grown up in Australia and yet has such a great perspective on America. It's so great to hear your vibe on what's actually happening because it's so difficult to see, obviously, because we're looking through these two lenses that come out of America about what's actually going on. So thanks, man. Stay safe. And I know you work really hard on the show and I know you're away from your family for 10 weeks at a time, but fuck, it's the greatest show on Australian television. (laughs) And so thank you so much. Uh, mate, thank you for saying that. And again, thank you so much for stepping in for me. That was a huge, huge help. And you fucking knocked it out of the ballpark. It was awesome. Mate, I'll probably never win a Logie, but honestly, that was the best prize I could have ever have gotten in my career as a, as a fan of the show. It really was the greatest thing ever that I, it was like going, no, 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 come on stage and play guitar with the stones. Okay. It was fucking cool. It was so cool. Oh, uh, look, mate, you look, you, you, you're hosting so many shows now just by the laws of probability. You know, I think you're going to, you're narrowing it down, mate. That Logie is coming your way. It nah, has to. No, it won't. It'll be the pity Logie when I'm, when I turn 60, it'll be the pity one they give you, the Hall of Fame or whatever. And I don't want that one. <laughs> That's right. funny. Have a great day, brother. Thanks uh, for your time. See you, Jonathan. All right. That was Jonathan LaPaglia. You can find him on Twitter, 
Uh, and hopefully, again, when Survivor eventually shows up again, whenever it is, I don't know when it's going to be. There's so much television that can't get filmed at the moment. It's tricky, you know, it's the one industry that we all turn to as soon as it locks down, but it's a tricky industry to keep making shows for just because of the nature of how you make TV. You've got to be in close proximity to each other, but we're figuring it out. I did all my worksite inductions for Masked Singer the other day, and they're pretty stringent. They're locking it in, and I'm really grateful for it um, because I like having the confidence that I can turn up to work. And, you know, I really hope that you feel that too. I really hope that you feel safe at work and you should understand that you have the right to be, feel safe at work. And if people aren't being safe at work and not following the COVID protocols, that it's totally fine to let them know. We're going to be here for a little while, so we may as well get used to it. Remember to be kind to each other. Uh, remember to wash your hands. Remember to stay safe. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I wear glasses. I also wear a mask. My glasses fog up. Mel Byrne, my uh, wardrobe stylist, the woman that makes all my incredible suits for Master Singer, she taught me something fantastic. Take a tissue, roll it to about a, like a one centimetre thick strip, put it on top of the bridge of your nose and then put the mask on top of that. Boom, problem solved. No more foggy glasses. And you can tip your hat to Mel Byrne for that. She's extraordinary. Anyway, until we speak next time, take care of yourself, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.